0: Macro View, episode 27. You're listening to the number one daily podcast focused on spreading the logic of liberty. I'm your host, Andrew Smith. On episode 26, I discussed how the Fed came about, a little history of central banking in the U.S., and some of the mechanisms of the Federal Reserve. Tonight, we're going to dive into the Fed's track record and some of the other statist implementations to quote unquote aid the Fed their dual mandate of full employment and stable prices, and we're going to discuss a little bit more, uh, some some recent current events. We discussed a little bit about the pre-Fed era, and I want to dig just briefly dig a little bit deeper into the history and some of the differences. So before the National Bank Act, banks were chartered at a state level. They accepted what was known as specie, which is basically gold and silver primarily. Um, they, so they accepted specie as deposits, offered time deposits and demand deposits, and some did have fractional reserve banking, but some also offered full reserve money warehousing and transaction processing for for demand deposits. The banks issued notes and certificates. So this is basically like what we use as money today, except there are a number of different, uh, different bank notes. And there are... A bunch of different business models. Some banks also offered financial intermediation services, or sort of what we call brokerage services, on top of the uh, on top of the deposit services. And there, there were, uh, there definitely were banking pa- panics and bank bankruptcies. Absolutely, um, nobody's denying that. And there's always risk in investing, and especially back then, it it's a lot more difficult to track investors. Uh, or investments, excuse me, and it was harder to uh, to do due diligence on the investments that you were making. Despite that, the market did thrive and markets thrived during the uh, pre-fed era and, and pre-national banking uh, act era. Banks came into existence, some went bankrupt, some had to liquidate assets and and pay their credit, you know pay back their creditors, uh, including depositors. And poor entrepreneurs, you know those with poor judgment as to what to invest in, were put out of business and replaced with others. That were able to perform better or at a more sensible plan or solution, according to the new owners, you know, after bankruptcy. Typically, investors that buy creditors out of their position and guide the company through the reorganization, uh, or competitors of the company that have been successful and can turn the business units around, you know, under their model. Those are typically the ones that go in and buy the distressed assets, which we'll talk a little bit more about in our uh, our. Upcoming episode on banking and cap episodes on banking and capital markets. Now, I also want to add one one last thing about this. Uh, banks back back in the day, you know, pre pre National Banking Act, owners were ho- were held fully liable for creditor uh, for for depositor liabilities. So if if you had depositors, if you ran a bank, if you're the owner or the executive of the bank, and you ran a bank you are personally liable for the deposits. Now there were provisions in some deposit contracts, including demand deposit contracts, which said in the event that the bank is not able to pay immediately, we're going to delay payment for up to six months and we'll pay you you X percentage above what the agreed upon interest rate was if there was an interest rate or we're gonna pay you X percentage uh, interest rate over that period of time. Now during this period, prices did fall slightly um, about 20 p- basis points a year of what what we would call or you know what's called modern in in modern times deflation and really it was just what it really was was an increased in abundance that was mainly a result of uh, technological advances now further because of the decentralized banking system there were from time to times waves of bank bankruptcies in different places but really there's never any kind of the domino effect that occurred and within 18 months or so, typically the economy was back to work. Now, there are some examples in history where that's not necessarily the case and where you did have waves of uh, of bank bankruptcies that lasted a little bit longer and, and you know, sort of mini depressions and, and recessions. But ultimately, the ability to, to discount banknotes from untrusted banks prevented banks from getting too entangled with one another. The decentralized system Prevented a single bank failure from triggering some sort of nationwide panic. In a series of upcoming episodes, as mentioned briefly just a little while ago, I'll be discussing banking and capital markets in which one of the multi-part episodes, we will discuss bankruptcy and the role of bankruptcy in allocating scarce resources, and we'll do so at length. They'll virtually be the the entire theme of that episode. We're going to also discuss in that episode the distressed market and how the distressed market works absent government interference. Also, we're going to touch on some of the misconceptions about capital markets and about some financial products and the way that they work. Tonight, though, we're going to be finishing our discussion about the Fed by covering how banks began operating under the Fed with the moral moral hazard in place of having a lender of last resort. We're also going to get into the Fed's track record and some of the statist follow-ups uh, that occurred to, uh, to allegedly support the Fed and their logically fallacious purpose, and then we're going to start by discussing tonight the changes in the operations from the decentralized state chartered banking system to the Federal Reserve System, and then the further manipulations that the government's layered upon right after this commercial break. All right, folks, so I know most, if not all, of my listeners are big believers in the free market. Some of my listeners may, from time to time, find themselves stumped by a statist. That's got to stop today, folks. We cannot let them embarrass us with pro-government intervention bumper sticker taglines and anti-free market memes. We need every single one of you to be able to clearly, concisely, and convincingly burn the statist strawmen. There's a resource for that. It's Tom Woods' Liberty Classroom. You can sign up today, and they have three different levels. Basic, Basic Plus, and Master. With the master membership in particular, you'll gain the equivalent knowledge of if you were to take a PhD program in libertarian thought, if there were such a thing at any of the various youth indoctrination centers that we call universities. So go and sign up today and begin taking courses such as an introduction to logic, the history of economic thought, Austrian economics step-by-step, John Maynard Keynes' his system and its fallacies, a ton of U.S. and Western Civilization History courses, Freedoms, Progress, the History of Political Thought, and much, much more. To learn more, go to macroviewnews.com and click on the link in the top right corner titled Liberty Classroom. Once you've completed the master course, you're guaranteed to be better prepared to help me spread the logic of liberty. So there have been three epics under the Federal Reserve System. The first epic was under a gold standard, in which the Federal Reserve actually did guarantee deposits on demand for Federal Reserve notes, guaranteed depo- depo- gold deposits. You, you could essentially go and turn in uh, your notes and get get gold back. And under this system, the, the Fed accepted gold specie from national charter member banks and issued notes, Federal Reserve notes or greenbacks or dollars, fiat mo- what we know as fiat money today, but it wasn't fiat money back then. It was actually backed by gold. And the big difference between the decentralized national banking system and the Federal Reserve system was that there was a single note authority that the Federal Reserve had. Essentially, their legal tender laws that the Federal Reserve notes were the only legal tender. No other banks were allowed to issue notes, and uh, Federal Reserve member banks were the only banks to gain access to Federal Reserve notes in, in return for a direct deposit. Other banks, state banks, local banks had to, or, or you know, regional banks had to go and. Uh, have deposits with a Fed member bank to gain access to Federal Reserve notes. And this gave the national, the Federal uh, Reserve member banks, the national banks, gave them control of the money expansion. They received the money first. They were able to expand money to smaller banks, to state banks, to regional banks. There are still state banks, and uh, there are national non-Federal Reserve member banks. Uh, They held deposits, as I just mentioned, at... Federal Reserve member banks to gain access to Federal Reserve notes. During this period, the Federal Reserve was largely impotent. They were able to adjust short-term interest rates that related to member banks. But beyond that, many of the non-member banks went away from transactional processing and really moved more towards financial intermediation, that is more brokerage services, investment services, and particularly in the Midwest, a lot of commodity brokerage services. Under the Federal Reserve system's first epic, the smaller banks really offered you know more more of these types of services, and also insurance policies and things like that. Some banks got into the underwriting of insurance and and brokering insurance policies, and this this uh, all of these were were transactions that occur or that could occur directly in gold. So they didn't necessarily need to rely on the uh, the on having access to the Federal Reserve. So in, in order to make the Fed a little bit less impotent. In 1933, one of the first things that the newly, newly inaugurated FDR did with this presidential power was sign off on Executive Order 6102. If you don't know what that is, that is the executive order which gave the federal government the right to go into people's homes and to confiscate their gold. Actually, agents from the federal government went into people's homes. My grandmother, who's um, 87 now, God bless her soul, actually remembers this. You know, She was a little kid. Um, but she actually remembers when and remembers hearing her dad complain about it for, for years, years to come, who is a farmer, uh, complain about the, the federal agents coming into her house and stealing their gold uh, not stealing it, but confiscating it as finalized the centralization of the creation of money around the Federal Reserve System and their nationally chartered member banks. It also created a lot of unease and uncertainty It froze private investment, which prior to this had really begun to emerge from its low in in 1931, despite all the interventions, contrary to popular belief, that Herbert Hoover was involved in during the first couple of years post the stock market crash. So Robert Higgs defined this as regime uncertainty. And as I discussed not too long ago on episode 21, I believe, I'll link to on tonight's show page, which you can find at macroviewnews.com slash twenty-six. Um I'll link to that that the episode where I discussed this in, in, in greater detail. In nineteen thirty-three and thirty-four, that's when the largest wave of financial regulations occurred. You had the FDIC, you had the Securities Exchange Commission, you had the CFTC. You had a whole bunch of loan guaranteeing agencies for everything from agriculture to to uh, to home ownership, and this is when the post gold exchange standard uh, epic began, which is or excuse me, this was when the gold standard began or the gold exchange standard began, where the the dollar was pegged to gold, but nobody actually held gold, and that la- you know that was um, uh, this was the period in which which lasted from about 33 until Nixon rejected requests by foreign governments for payment in gold specie. So up until 1971, the U.S. was technically still on a gold standard and paid foreign debts in gold. But In 1971, remember, Nixon removed us from the, the gold standard altogether. We moved to a pure fiat currency. But we're going to discuss... In greater detail, the SEC and some of the non-bank financial regulatory agencies that have emerged onto the scene, thanks to our very gracious overlords that want nothing but the best for each and every one of us. Tonight, though, I want to focus on the agencies that were put in place primarily to to aid the Fed, and, and mainly that is the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. So the FDIC was brought into existence by the Banking Act of 1933. The idea was to insure depositors in the event of a bank failure. Now, if you remember in last episode when I talked about the creation of the Fed, this might sound very familiar. So it, it, it was created to insure depositors in the event of a bank failure. Basically, the idea was you know, that if 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 depositors knew that they were gonna get their money back, it would prevent bank runs. You know, Bank runs which set in motion the systematic decline of asset values when depositors are demanding their money back that has already been lent out and is not sitting on cash and as described in the in the previous episode uh, leads this leads banks to fire sell assets to try to make depositors whole and you know you have a giant increase of assets on the market you have the same amount of buyers or fewer buyers you're going to have asset prices come down that's what leads to the collapse of financial markets the idea was if during a downturn depositors were not so anxious to get their money out if they knew even if the bank failed, their deposits would be safe, and bank runs wouldn't occur, and it, you'd prevent you know what they call a liquidity crisis. So obviously, this didn't work out the way that it was planned, and for a number of reasons. Primarily, getting your money back soon and getting your money back now are very different things. And demand depositors, as the name suggests, have the right to call their money immediately. They, they have the right to demand it back. And banks must comply or they default on their liabilities, forcing them into bankruptcy. The creation of the FDIC really should have been a red flag because in the early 1900s, the exact same pitch that they used for the FDIC was the pitch that they used to create the Federal Reserve. It was what the exact same pitch that to be a lender of last resort, to prevent liquidity crisis, to prevent run, runs on banks or the effects of runs on banks. That was the pitch used to create the Fed. They use the exact same pitch to now create the the FDIC, and again, a really good book by Robert Higgs, Crisis and Leviathan, describes how this exact same pattern happens over and over again throughout the history of, of of government. That you have a crisis, government uses the crisis to expand government. It creates another crisis. They use the crisis to expand government more. Mises talked about this. Rothbard talked about this. Everybody in the Austrian tradition has a really good grasp of exactly how this happens. And mainstream uh, economists and mainstream Americans, mainstream political scientists and and mainstream historians really just kind of ignore this fact. A lot of times they they come up with really odd arguments. Not going to get into that tonight. Another part of the Banking Act of 33, which which we often refer to as the Glass-Steagall was the prohibition on banks conducting speculative investment businesses with depositor dollars, and particularly with demand depositor dollars, which frankly really, it, you know, banks getting involved in investing you know, speculative investments, which really making loans is a speculative investment if you really think about it, it, it wouldn't have been that big of an issue if it weren't for the fractional reserve system. But rather than change that, or rather than move back to a free market banking system where you have more of a where you have more competition, you have, uh, like we had in the past. You have you have owners being held liable for deposits. Instead of moving back to that, politicians always come down on the side of granting themselves more political power. And, and those politicians decided that preventing investment, ban- preventing banks from making speculative bets with depositor dollars, basically preventing them from making markets, as sometimes we call it in the biz that that would prevent the problem from occurring again. So, but we all know that it didn't. It didn't prevent the problem from occurring again. We had financial crises in the 80s prior to the repeal of Glass-Steagall. We had stagflation throughout the 70s. Um, you know, it, But particularly the savings and loans crisis in the 80s, that should have, again, raised a red flag. Now, I should say, in terms of the exact catalyst of the 1929 crash... You know, since I'm at this point in history here, talking about uh, the the follow ups to the 29 crash, still to this day, it doesn't really garner consensus. So, I made a strong case in the last episode for what the catalyst likely was, which was layoffs, primarily at at energy and electricity plants, which had expanded quite rapidly throughout the 20s, and at manufacturing firms, particularly appliance manufacturing, which which again. Had expanded rapidly with the, with the uh, growth of of uh, electricity for for the average American. You had really low interest rates in the 20s. You had this big misallocation of resources, and uh, it's it's likely that a lot of that was starting to come down. You don't have great data on this. It is a long time ago. You didn't have great collection of data, and but that seems to be the likely cause. There's there's also potentially. Some uh, some strong account. I should say that those layoffs word spreads. People realize okay, some of these firms aren't doing as well. There wasn't quite as good of transparency back then. Um, There began to be a lot better transparency post twenty nine and prior to the SEC coming in. We're not going to talk about that now. We'll talk about that on the episodes of related to uh, banking and capital markets that are coming up next week. But there are also some strong accounts that I've seen. You know, they're non-Austrian explanations. That actually point to the public utility sector, um, or what we know as the public utility sector now, and their desire or need to really raise prices to pay off debts that had accrued as interest rates were starting to rise. They owed a lot; you know, their payments were were increasing to to service their debt. They had to raise prices, and uh, when attempting to develop some of these you know new energy technologies that really never came to fruition, maybe they were losing some money a little bit as well. And needed to compensate uh, their their losses with, with a little bit higher prices on in in other aspects of their business that were successful and, and that consumers demanded would would have been willing to pay higher prices for, so but they were prevented from raising prices and in particular Edison Boston, be, uh, you know began to uh, try to ra- raise prices but the state of Massachusetts uh, really began to talk tough about it and there's a lot of there's a lot of belief that they were going to take action. To prevent price prices from uh, from rising, which again probably led to layoffs, as we know, the unemployment rate rose quite significantly leading up to the crash, and then even more so after the crash. But uh, the state of New York also did this, and Edison, New York, uh, wanted to raise prices. Basically, Edison had almost a virtual monopoly on some of this stuff, Um, and there are even talks about nationalizing the uh, the the utility companies at times. Um, if you go back in history and look into some of the the uh, the history of, uh, of New York utility companies, you'll see that you know, really public utility movement began, uh, began in New York with a gentleman by the name of Hearst, who was a newspaper owner, and uh, the public unit utility, uh, at least not nationalization, but the equivalent at a city level. Or what you would call that cityalization, uh, but basically making them public, uh, publicly owned or state-owned companies. And some of these actions and some of this rhetoric, which was totally unprecedented at the time, very possibly spooked investors and really backs up the account that uh, that Robert Higgs gave of regime uncertainty. There's a lot of other really good points that Robert Higgs makes as to why the the depression not only Occurred, but was as long lasting as it was. So, going back just a little bit quickly to the FDR era, FDR implemented the FDIC and banned crossover banking operations. So, you know, basically separating lending institutions from investment institutions, and also launched a number of government loan insurance programs for farmers, for homeowners, and other select projects. And there are also you, people have heard about the alphabet soup. You you could Google Alphabet Soup, all the different agencies that were created under under FDR's massive expansion of the federal government under FDR, really setting us up for sort of where we are today. Given that there is only so much real capital and that there's limits to the amount of credit that they can create out of thin air because of reserve requirements, this meant that would-be eligible borrowers looking for a loan in an area that's not able to be guaranteed or overlooked. I'm going to talk a little bit more about this in upcoming episodes, but just briefly. Yeah, so basically, a highly qualified borrower in an area that's not guaranteed is still not as good of a bet for a bank as the U.S. government in the bank size. The U.S. government can legally steal money from people at gunpoint, and even the most qualified private borrower is not allowed to do that, and then the Federal Reserve technically can... Even though it was harder for them back then, could have printed money and inflated, and uh, lowered the um, the gold exchange standard uh, to where you know, basically you would receive less gold back for for your dollars. This would cause inflation or you know monetary inflation. It would increase the money supply. It would make government uh, make it a little bit easier for government to pay back their debts. This has obviously been exacerbated significantly. It continues to this day. Um, but this this definitely exacerbated the financial crisis. And to this day, it continues to exacerbate financial crisis and panics. It creates bigger boom cycles. It creates more violent bust cycles, and it keeps taxpayers on the hook for bankers that have poor entrepreneurial judgment. These loan guarantee programs are horrible, horrible ideas. And I'm not going to get into all the details on it today on today's episode, but we will talk about about it quite a bit more on upcoming episodes. The FDIC also eliminated any responsibility of a depositor to question what their bank is doing with their money. With the FDIC in place, depositors could give a shit less what the bank invests their money in. So there's been some awakening to uh, this con- consumer moral hazard, but really, it's, it's really nothing in the scheme of things. People just, just, a lot of people just still don't understand that you got to look into what your bank is doing with your money. Albeit, not everybody's an expert at, at you know, looking into credit risk, there are credit ratings for banks, and albeit credit ratings aren't always the most reliable, uh, but at the same time, you, you do got to do a little bit of due diligence on, on what your bank's doing. So now we have a little bit of a stronger background on the Federal Reserve System. Let's dive into some of the potential implications of the recent, um, and by recent, I mean last month's announcement by the Federal Open Markets Committee, which just such a gigantic misnomer for an organization that literally closes market of interest rates and centralizes the setting of the price of renting money. But for what it's worth, that's what it's called. The decision, of course, back in January or excuse me, back in December by the FOMC was to raise interest rates a quarter point, um, which in percentage terms is to raise interest rates by uh, this was the second one. It went from 0.25 to 0.5, now to 0.75. That first interest rate, obviously, was a 50 inc- percent increase in the interest rate. The difference between 0.5 and 0.25 is not 0.25 percent; it's 50 percent. It's double, or excuse me, it's 100 percent double. And then the next one, uh, this one from 0.5 to 0.75 percent, is a 50 percent increase in the uh, the the interest rate. They also raised the discount rate 25 basis points. Um, from, I believe from 1% to 1.25%. So again, that's a 25% increase in that interest rate. And we're going to dive right into that after this quick message. All right, everyone. So I've got another great resource for those of you that are saying, Andrew, you know, I'd love to do Tom Woods' master level courses on Liberty Classroom, but I really don't have the time for that right now. I need a crash course on Liberty and Austrian economics. Maybe you're saying to yourself, you know, Donald Trump was just inaugurated, and my parents or my wife or my husband or someone else I love is way over the moon. All their free market so-called convictions were tossed out. They threw the baby out with the Obamas. And now that there's a Republican in the White House, that's all that matters. I need something fast. I need something that'll get me caught up in a day or at most in a week. Well, folks, I've got you covered. If you want to learn more in a single day or in a week about economics than most people will learn in a lifetime, you're going to want to head over to Mises.org and check out their absolutely free Mises Bootcamp. In five quick lessons. You'll learn more than enough to take down any of the various absurd defenses of government interference in the economy that your Republican loved ones may launch over the next four to eight years to justify the big spending and big government and all sorts of other interferences, tariffs, whatever may come about under the Trump administration. For your convenience, you'll find a link directly to the registration page for the Mises Boot Camp on tonight's show page. Stop waiting. And harness the knowledge that you need today. So for the past, what, eight years now, we've had historically low interest rates, the lowest in the history of the United States, uh, brought on by the extremely easy money policies of the Federal Reserve to try to curb uh, curb the economy from going into what they believed was the second Great Depression. And I talked about a couple episodes ago, which I'll link to on tonight's show page at macroviewnews.com slash it talked about the uh, the reason why it, it actually still should be, despite all of the things that the Fed has done, the reason why it should still be considered the second Great Depression. Having said that, uh, we have had historically low interest rates. And, and this time, it's a, it's, it's a little bit different from most because the, the FOMC decided to ga- engage in a massive distressed asset purchasing program what we know as a, a as quantitative easing. So basically what happened is we discussed a little bit on uh, episode 23, which again, I'll, I'll link to that episode, everything I'm talking, all the other episodes, and if I ever bring up articles or anything on an on an episode, I'll always link to that on the show page, which you can find at macroviewnews.com slash the episode number, yeah, number 26, number 27, whatever it is. But basically what happened, discussed a little bit about this on episode 23, I believe um, the, the, the Treasury reneged on what they first called toxic asset repurchase program uh, because after just a little bit of thinking after the TARP bill passed, a head of the Treasury at the time, Hank Paulson, realized, well, who are we to say what these assets are worth? Why should we buy them directly and instead op- opted to purchase preferred equity assets of the major banks to quote unquote recapitalize them? Now to be fair the banks did pay back the treasury and t- technically it a profitable investment if you could call it that but hell honestly you know if the treasury had given me 800 billion dollars to recapitalize my balance sheet and to purchase profitable assets at values that were at multiple multi-generational lows I think I'd turn a pretty decent profit as well and then the fed after, the fed this is different from the treasury after lowering interest rates effectively to 0% announced that it was going to engage in quantitative easing. And you know what exactly is quantitative easing? Essentially, the Federal Reserve would purchase agency, agency means government-insured, agency mortgage-backed securities off of bank balance sheets at an arbitrary, non-market, intervention-dictated value for cash to further capitalize the banks and to help the banks pay back the debt that they were given to government. So that's just another reason. I mean, hell, even without the Fed discount window, I could have turned a profit with $800 billion in October of 2008. But uh, they also had the benefit of the Fed coming in and arbitrarily deeming what these assets were worth, which essentially they said they're worth full par value because the government's going to insure them. These were not loans made to these banks, rather they were purchases of the assets. So the idea was as those assets matured, the, the Fed would just simply let them expire. They're not going to sell them off again. So there's some issues though. First off, the extremely low interest rates have pushed asset values up through basically a process of attrition. Uh, essentially, you, a lot of what the, uh, the increase in, in the stock market values were going back is what, what we call float shrink in the business. Their acquisitions, stock buybacks, uh public to you know, public to private buyouts. Uh there are mergers. It, you know, there definitely were some exuberant R&D projects that have that have been invested in. There's inc- been significant increase in inv- investments in entertainment, in the game economy, and the app economy, and long-term projects in energy resource development, uh, both for fossil fuel and so-called green energy projects. Has been pretty much the primary driver. Uh, there were many that believed. this, I mean, I'm talking a little bit about recent stock market history, and I'm, I'm going to digress here a little bit just because a lot of people thought that the the, the, the the next crash coming was when oil fell, and particularly people thought that the MLP market, that's Master Limited Partnership, which I don't have a ton of time to go into deep details about what the, what exactly MLPs are. I'll probably write a blog post uh, explaining a little bit more about what they do, but <clears throat> uh, a lot of people thought that the MLP market would bring the entire energy market down with it. For those that know about MLPs and understand the energy infrastructure market, which is primarily what MLPs are engaged in, pipelines, uh, refineries, things like that, it was actually a great opportunity to buy. Yield skyrocketed. Now, there were some that did go out of business. Um, some of the poor entrepreneurs in the MLP industry um, you know, the, In the energy MLP and energy infrastructure MLP industry, particularly R&D or not r and D E E&D, exploration, uh, e and exploration and production MLPs were the ones that, that got hit the hardest because they have a lot more variable uh, cash flow streams. But most MLPs, uh, at least the ones that you would want to buy, are energy infrastructure firms that have fixed rate pricing with oil drillers for every barrel that travels through their pipelines or on their ships or is stored in their facilities, or is refined in their refineries. And they often cut deals for very, very long terms with these oil companies, for like 50 years or something. So these businesses are set up almost like toll roads. They generate really safe, fairly safe cash flows. And the demand for oil actually rose as the price came down. So during the period of the most depressed prices for oil demand was was still pretty high it's just that supplies continue to increase as well and while drilling slowed r- rigs don't just get shut down overnight there were losses that were had leading into the crash that began about two summers ago but there are also especially as as you know the the oil prices started to bottom out in the beginning of 2016 there's some great opportunities there so i really personally i really never never bought that pitch but there's there's an, that's enough digression the majority of the increase in value, the increases in earnings per share and other per share fundamental items for, for public equities have come, excuse me, have come from the use of, of cheap leverage, borrowing money at really low interest rates to concentrate ownership and to retire shares. This led to a lower supply of public equity and at such a low rate of interest, it's signifying a false demand for debt, for debt instruments by savers. Low interest is supposed to occur when you have lots of savings. Companies borrowed and borrowed more. You don't. You didn't have lots of savings. That's not what, what caused low interest rates. Just to make that point, but companies began to borrow more and more, and uh, use that money to sometimes make investments, but for the most part, for the most part, is a lot of buybacks. You had a ton of buybacks. You had a ton of mergers. You had a ton of uh, you know private to uh, public to private buyouts. That really it caused what's called float shrink which creates premiums in uh, historical price-to-earnings ratios and things like that, uh, actually could potentially create whole new levels at which PE ratios would settle at because you have a similar demand for some of these financial products. Not everybody can access private investment. You have to have a lot of money to access private investment. You have to be an accredited investor, and the due diligence is a lot tougher. You can maybe access it through some, some, uh, some private equity funds. Even then, you have to be... What's called, what's known as a credit uh, accredited investor. So you have to be wealthy already, essentially, which I'm not. I'm not going to get into right now. But the um, <clears throat> the housing market, especially in some cities, is actually more expensive today than it was in 2007 in in real terms. So in, in you know in, in inflation adjusted or, or deflation adjusted or dollar value adjusted price parity uh, is another way to look at it. Um, adjusted terms, and as interest rates rise people are going to be able to afford less and less house because people don't people while well, you do kind of think okay well this is the price of the house what people really look at when they're buying a house is what's my monthly payment so if interest rates rise monthly payments are going to go up people are going to afford less and less house and then inevitably this will eventually lead to either real estate real estate values declining or at least suppressed gains or some some stagnation in the value of real estate now, household debt has receded from its highs, and has done so quite significantly. And the idea that real estate never goes down, yeah, you know, that mentality is nowhere near where it was at the peak of the bubble, yeah, uh, you know, that caused the crisis in in 2008. The energy bear market proved not to create sy- systematic contagion across industries, and I would say, in fact, it, it's boosted productivity significantly has made companies much more profitable than they otherwise would have been had oil prices been say i don't know 20 or 30 percent higher now combine interest rates doubling with an increase in energy prices or some inflation you could get another jimmy carter era runaway stagflation type of scenario ultimately with the trump administration as i'm recording this his inauguration address is about to begin in just a couple minutes here. With the Trump administration, there's much uncertainty still. Uh, the tax cuts, maybe it happens. Um, yeah, it doesn't look like Social Security reform is going to happen, which which absolutely needs to happen if we really want to cut spending and reduce the budget. And you know, even the Obamacare repeal and replace rhetoric has kind of come, come around to more of a Obamacare, let's try to make it a little bit better, quote unquote, a little bit better, uh, rhetoric, and as far as corporate interests, as it appears, you can expect more of the same. As you know, you look at the carrier deal and some of the continued rhetoric, the prominent use of of, of Trump's position to uh, generate buzz for for his businesses, which is it's a little bit tasteless, but I don't really object to it too much. Um, I personally probably wouldn't act that way, but uh, there are a lot of major issues that that need to be tackled that have nothing to do with that. And if a couple major issues here or there do get tackled that could give the market some continued confidence or on the opposite side of the spectrum the chickens could come home to roost and there could be a serious crash ultimately for trump i think you'd prefer a a crash early rather than later you'd want it to happen very early in the administration and then you know give have some time to have reform set in and and for the economy to come back and it's sort of like what happened with with reagan there's still a ton of cash on the sidelines. There's still a ton of cash offshores. So if you bring some of the money offshores back without the taxes, or through some sort of massive regulatory repeals, you incentivize the capital on the sidelines to go to work. Things could go well if you implement a bunch of crony projects that command real resources with taxpayer dollars inefficiently, not to the best, uh, not not to best serve consumer demand, but to best meet political expediency you could end up with a stagflationary recession like the 70s or another major crash. Now, it is possible for private money to come in and save save the day, so to speak. Um, I personally find it unlikely given the tone of politics and the utterly disgraceful betrayal of even the, the, the slightest bit of, of free market defense, even if never acted upon by Republicans, a party that has claimed for the past 30 years to be a party that defended free markets and capitalism, though their actions should have, warned everybody years ago, you know, to now have a vice president that says, and I quote, We tried the free market and the American people are losing, when there are more federal regulations than ever before, when the government commands a larger percentage of real resources than ever before, with the monetary financial system are more heavily manipulated and regulated than ever before, when we have the highest corporate tax rate in the world, when we have a per capita regulatory burden that resembles the likes of Italy and Spain and some of the worst European socialist experiments where they have 20% unemployment and 40% youth unemployment and and you call it free markets? That's absurd. And Mike Pence should have known better. Now to me, what happens with the markets over the next five to 10 years with with the stock market is less important now not personally for my for my pocket as as many of you know I am a uh, co-founder and and one of the majority owners of an investment advisor so market's going up is is typically pretty good for my business but to me from an economic standpoint what happens in the market in the stock market isn't as important look public companies publicly traded companies can do quite well in an environment where people are hurting and the economy actually sucks when you tax savings out of existence When you make retirement insurance a function of the state, when you regulate innovation and entrepreneurship in virtually all industries, and I say virtually because they're obviously gaping holes in the regulatory bureaucracy, and those are the fastest growing industries where all the innovation is centered, but when you create a world where there's no creative disruption, when there's no threat of competition, sure, big powerful corporations can do just fine with their bureaucratic processes. So the stock market is not necessarily an indication of the productivity or the increased abundance. Further, the US 100% absolutely benefits from foreign trade. We import goods at fractions of the price that producers would have to charge to make a profit if they are produced here. Partially because we have a minimum wage law. We also have laws against people working before a certain age. We have laws against people working more than a certain number of hours. Partially because in the US... People actually do believe that their time is more valuable, mainly because in this country, the level of capital accumulation and investment over the years has led to significantly superior processes in technology. And producing those goods proved to be preferred to others among the workers and investors. So there's a reason why we engage in foreign trade. And if I think it'd be a really bad idea to try to stick ourselves into uh foreign trade wars and to try to, to, uh, to eliminate some of the benefits that we have from foreign trade. Now, don't get me wrong. NAFTA and some of these state organized trade deals are not the way to go. I don't understand. I I do understand from a political expediency standpoint why you have trade deals. And I do understand why, you know, just, it is what it is. Foreign countries probably wouldn't trade with us without some sort of trade deal. And that could be bad as well. But essentially what the trade deal should say is if somebody in your country wants to sell something to somebody in our country that is not a significant danger to public health or or national security, they're allowed to. I mean, that's what the trade deal should say. And they can do so at whatever price they want with no tariffs. Now, th- there's another aspect that's financial, that, you know, the quote-unquote too big to fail issue, which Dodd-Frank bill was supposed to, to, to solve. And while there are quote-unquote Orderly liquidation standards for banks now as a a result of that bill. Too big to fail didn't go away because it was never too big to fail. It was government incentives and at times coercion to take abhorrent risks. I mean, that's what it really was. It had nothing to do with too big to fail. What it was was that these banks had a ton of government insured debt, agency mortgage-backed securities that went bust because they were subprime crappy loans. And we talked about you know, the, the crisis issue, you know, where you end up with, with fractional reserve, you end up having fire sales and, and all of that. So on the one hand, as I said, there could be a revitalization of private investment if there are real tax cuts and a real regulatory repeal or cutback. The years of capital investment and accumulation, capital accumulation and investment, the years of entrepreneurial innovation, they've built up to a pinnacle where a shift toward a freer market could have a significantly positive benefit on our economy. And then on the other hand, there's absolute demagoguery and fallacious rhetoric coming out of president-elect's camp. So we, I guess we just kind of have to wait and see. You know, demographics also could play a major role as well. Over the next eight years, social security work is just going to become a bigger and bigger and bigger issue. You know, much is yet to be seen. And there could be catalysts lurking for both a major crash or a continued market run. And again, increases in market values and stock market values are caused primarily by interest rate manipulations right now and are neither sustainable or healthy. You know, other than a continued encouragement of some investment, the bubbles can often send really bad signals to entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs end up misallocating real resources to, uh, to, to use the, you know, real scarce resources with alternative uses to uses that don't best meet consumer demands. So we live in an interesting world, and uh, it's likely that absent a significant political event, a takeover, so to speak, of industry or a new monopolist era or a new height of cronyism, so to speak, it is likely absent such an event that humanity continues to progress. I and mean, look, we live in the absolute, absolute best time there is to live, and absent government, serious government interventions, that's just going to continue to to occur. And globally. Speaking at least, you know, markets have become more and more free. Now, I could be wrong about that, but there are entrepreneurial forces at work that I believe will prevent the type of destructive actions in the future that states such as the Soviet Union, Cuba and China of the past, you know, Cuba kind of still, North Korea and Venezuela recently and currently, uh, there could be uh, entrepreneurial actions and forces at work that could prevent the type of, type of actions that these states took and many of the tools of the modern state in my belief will in in my lifetime be rendered useless because of some of this disruption and a new era of civil disobedience may be in order. A capitalist civil disobedience an entrepreneurial civil disobedience, a peaceful subversion of the status quo through creative disruption, so to speak, done so in a way that benefits to the, the benefits to the masses are so undeniable, they're irrevocable by government and will force statists to really rethink their worldview. That could be really good. Well, that's all for tonight, folks. I hope you enjoyed this two-part series on the Federal Reserve and my little take on, on you know what's coming up in regards to markets and the economy in the next eight years. And I'm going to get out of here and try to go watch the, uh, the inauguration speech. As a good anarcho-capitalist, I'm probably going to be ripping my hair out. But typically, these speeches are Meant to be inspirational and philosophical, and and look, it is what it is. You know, let's hope that that Donald Trump and his cabinet can move us closer to a free market. Let's hope that the rhetoric is just that. So, other than that, I hope everybody has a wonderful rest of their evening. If you haven't been listening to this episode on the Macro View uh, website on our show page, you really should check it out. You'll find links to all the resources needed to explore these topics further. And you'll find links to our social media pages where you can follow us um, on, on Twitter and on Facebook. If you subscribe to our mailing list, you'll get new episode alerts delivered right to your inbox and you'll be kept privy on developments at the macro view, including some big ones coming in, uh, in, this, you know, in, the, in the next month or so. So you should really sign up and subscribe so you'll be the first to know. And most importantly, this is the most important part, don't forget to share the macro view with your friends and family, and help me to spread the logic of liberty. Hope everyone enjoys the rest of their evening or day or whenever you're catching up on episodes. Take care, folks. You have been listening to The Macro View. Tune in tomorrow night and every weeknight at 9.30 p.m. Pacific Time to help spread the logic of liberty.